Hello, and welcome to Interest. My name is Lisa Lombard. And my name is Rick Kitagawa, and thank you for joining us for our show about the greatest asset for leaders, organizations, and communities alike, trust. Today, we're really looking forward to our conversation with the Adam Thomas, a product person and technologist based in Harlem, New York, who is focused on strategy, team organization, and product management. Adam believes that product management isn't just about getting done what's on the roadmap. It's fundamentally about people. So he looks at things in a way that leverages behavioral science, psychology, philosophy, and more to build extraordinary teams that thoughtfully bake culture into what they are developing. Adam is currently the lead product manager over at Smart Recruiters, a columnist at Built In, and also shares weekly product management tips and other fun resources in his newsletter, which will be shared a link to in the show notes so you can subscribe. Adam, welcome to the show. Lisa, Rick, I am honored to be here. Thank you, thank you, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being here. And we are so glad you've decided to say yes to this. So thank you, Adam. And for people though, who don't know you and don't have the pleasure of knowing you and are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Well, one fun fact about me, pretty clumsy. And so if you ever... <laughs> If you ever see me in public and I stumble and fall, I promise you, I'm not drunk. I'm not doing, I just, I just can't really, I, I'm just very awkward at times. So I'm going to be very transparent and open with that. So what do I do professionally? What, what do I do? I think Lisa had a wonderful uh, opening for me. I currently work at Smart Recruiters as the lead product manager. And what that generally means is I am helping them create strategy for their enterprise portfolio, right? So how do teams help get better results out of their hiring solution? Something we call net hiring score, where we help teams get better hires because better hires equals a better work environment. Better work environment means we're all happy. And so so that's really the focus. And then on the side, yeah, I, I love to... I'm a, I'm a writer, so I have my column. Also love movies. Anybody that wants to talk movies, always in if you, if you see me. And I love a wonderful, now I know I said earlier I wasn't drunk, but I do love a great cocktail. Currently I'm really into old fashioned. So if you see me in a town that's not New York, or if you see me in New York, let me know where your favorite place to get old fashioned is. I would love to try it. I love that, Adam, for so many reasons, but the first one also being because I am so clumsy and I think Rick was laughing extra hard because he knows that too about me. And I just, I really relate to what you're saying there. And my, my poison of choice is craft beer. I'm a home brewer. So happy to swap any day with old fashioned places with great craft brewing places on this. I want to get into what you're doing in the product space a little bit. And I'm just, I'm especially excited seeing someone like you at a place like smart recruiters that is innovating in a space that's so important for organizations because it fundamentally is around people. And that's the lens that you come at is building product and product teams and centering that around people and the human experience. As I was mentioning in your intro, not just around the roadmap or that box checking kind of exercise, you're really looking at, you know, here's the humans involved and how do we consider that with the team and how we're building this and the product itself in the second and the third order consequences. And I think this is so fascinating and there's so many lessons in the space that you're in and how you're leading that go far beyond product management. So I'd love if you could share maybe a bit more about your posture 
and philosophy as a technologist and product person. That's thank you, Lisa. I, that's perfect. I really, really, really reject the the box checking, order taking piece of of product. Far too often, prior to my my time at Smart Recruiters, I was a consultant, and I still do some consulting on the side. When I come and look at product teams, a lot of times they default to that posture of we have a lot of inbound. Our sales folks are are giving us this. Our engineers are tell engineers are telling us that. We have to be the, the, the folks that put it all together and, and maybe we come up with this magical thing called a roadmap that no one listens to and we never uh, make things on time <laughs> on it, right? And so when it comes to my posture, when it comes to product management, I'd like to get completely away from that. Let's just call it determined roadmap, right? That preordained idea that we have some understanding as to what the future looks like and move towards a place where we heighten our communication and we heighten our understanding of not just the infrastructure of the company or sales requests, but also the people inside of that company in order to and live in that ambiguity, right? Live in the space of, of just the unknown that exists inside of building things and making things. Be honest with ourselves around the concept of well, what I like to call product calculus, the fact that we're never reaching something. It's never a determined place that we're reaching, right? We're always approaching something, uh, which is this idea of the perfect outcome for our customer. And let's live in that. Let's think that way. Let's try our best to, to get as close to the target as we can and look at our processes, look at our biases, look at, look at our relationships in order to get as close as we can, as opposed to thinking about these just points, right? That we're, that we're going to hit these ideal targets. I appreciate a lot about what you just shared, Adam. And I think what I'm hearing is a focus away from maybe a destination and more on the journey to get there. And how can you align people around getting close? And, and I think providing that nuance in order to know that maybe even where you thought you wanted to be might not be the best place to be at the end anyway. And so I think having the flexibility to make a little bit of a course correction along the way is, is so valuable. And I definitely embodied, but I would love to know a little bit more about this lens of how you look at product. Why is it so important to you personally? I think software for better, or for worse is becoming more important in our lives, right? It's getting far more resourced. A lot more people are moving into the field. Um, it's hot right now as a prestige type of career, especially product management, whereas folks would have loved to be consultants for McKinsey or Bain uh, 20 years ago or 10 years ago. They're now going and, and working to trying to be product managers. And so we have this huge influx of people coming in to this field and creating things that affect our lives, all the way from government now, where you see the Biden administration really putting a lot of focus into building out a, a side of tech inside of the government, right? Really infusing that into what we do. And shout out to folks like 18F who are doing that type of work all the way through to, you know, from our, our cities, not just the federal level, but also our cities. And then also our schools, our healthcare system. Tech is not just this uh, cool thing that we do on the side that helps our, our, our whims, right? It's affecting our daily lives far more. And so as those folks come into are uh, the field of technology, me being here for 
at least the last 15 years, I've seen a lot of mistakes with folks really not appreciating the journey of where we're trying to go with product development and a lot of wasted money, and wasted time, wasted effort. And as the stakes get higher, it's extremely important to me to try to teach those that are coming in and those that are finding themselves really new to the field or maybe new to leadership or maybe new to kind of a, a different form of technology that there is room for thoughtfulness. There is room for thinking about the journey. It doesn't have to be all systems go to this point, this arbitrary point that we're that we were created and often miscommunicated throughout our organizations so that uh, there's more space and time for us to think about things that affect us, especially as it takes higher like bias and the pains of our, our customers and the world itself. I really appreciate your lens on this, Adam, and you can hear your thoughtfulness in this and also your generosity, because I think you've got a lens and a posture that frankly, if you want to, you can kind of keep to yourself and have this competitive advantage in your space in a, in a place where, you know, there's a lot of people inflowing in. And instead you've really brought in this openness towards your work and really sharing your knowledge, your point of view, your experience with other people and inviting them into that journey with you and inviting them into that way of seeing, which I think is so holistic. You've got this view of the forest and the trees. At the same time, we've talked about your posture being so centered on people and, and relationships as well, relationships between the people on a product team and a wider organization as well, but also the relationships between people and the technology that you, they're using. And at the end of the day, all those relationships come down to trust. And I'm curious, you have a lot of experience in this space and you've got kind of this view where I feel like you sit back with this calmness and observe what's happening. I'm curious, what are some key areas where you've seen trust come into play in your work? It's, it, it's, I, I love the term key because like uh, I could say everywhere, right? Um, <laughs> but I, I think the time after decisions are made, like the trust in that decision that folks can feel safe in, right, is a huge piece for product managers. And I think one piece that's often missing, especially from product managers that are very command control, and we were going to go over to do this and we're going to do that, is that Unless you are the benevolent dictator that has never failed and folks know that you have their back and you're very, very sharp and focused, which is almost no one, right? Like this is an extremely rare characteristic. I might've seen it once in like thousands of people, right? Like folks are going to go back and then they're going to play telephone. They're going to gossip. They're going to figure out kind of, they're going to think what's really going on here. And then this is going to cascade into these different Outcomes and outputs that you don't expect, often bad. For example, I've seen companies create these huge plans. The leadership team is all aligned. Everybody, they have a big party. Everybody goes, this is awesome. We're going to really kill it over the next year. And then afterwards, uh, six months or a year later, all the competitive advantages they had were gone. And they have a product that no one uses, no one cares about. And a lot of that falls squarely on, on the product team because they didn't have the trust inside of the organization post these decisions in order for other folks to trust it enough to carry them out. So I think decision trust is a huge, huge, huge piece of uh, what product folks do. And it's something that they have to keep an eye on and just how they operate. I think also there has to be a trust in failure because I think you brought this up earlier, Lisa, like I have never seen someone make something right the first time. 
no matter how much information I've, I've, I've sat back and gathered, I've never done it, right? I could sit back for a year and gather information and talk to customers and do this and do that. Never been right. Just saying, this is what we've made. Ta-da. And so <laughs> there has to be a level of comfort in the failure of, of what you do because the failure is coming and how folks trust your ability to deal with that and then to, to take that as a learning lesson as opposed to shame or, or play the shame and blame game really affects your ability to, to build stuff, not just once, but consistently throughout your tenure as a, as a product person. I love that, Adam. And I think so many of your points around the uncertainty around being able to own failure and be comfortable with that. And, and I think what I'm hearing through that is the willingness to accept an iterative process. Once again, going back to the journey is really important. And I think a lot of people can really relate to some of the downsides, right? Of the, you know, the back channel talks, the meetings after the meetings, the miscommunication, the roadmap that leads to a negative outcome. And I think I think a lot of people really resonate with that because we've all been in those organizations where communication breaks down and things just kind of go sideways. And I would love to know if there's any specifically practical lessons around trust, around maybe fixing some of those that you've seen, that you've experienced, that you've implemented in your work that you think that other leaders would benefit from as well. Yes. This is funny. I was talking to a, a mentor of mine about this maybe a couple of weeks ago when I used to work basically for him at, at a firm. And he was telling me, yeah, we still do this cultural anthropology. And I was like, that's perfect. Like, that's exactly what you should be doing uh, as a leader. Right? You should constantly be studying the culture that you're in. And so some of the practical ways to do that is um, if you find yourself in that situation, I think the most important thing you can do right now is to look at the stakeholders or the folks around you in a cross-functional way that trust you or are at least closest to you. Get some one-on-one time with them on the calendar and just say, hey, I want us to do better. Uh, here are some things that I think we're not doing well. Let me know if that's true. And what do you think? Like, what would you add to this list? What's unclear? What's Where can we be better? And generally kind of taking that list and, and just repeating that conversation over and over and over again until you have a map of at least your lotus of control. This could be if you're on like a, a leadership level, this could be with other directors or VPs, or if you're an individual contributor, this could just be people that are around you. This really works kind of no matter where you are, right? Um, and then once you get this map, you can come together with the folks in that room and start to say, okay, here are some of the problems. You take the names away from it. You get away from the kind of the blame thing in order to avoid that whole mess. You don't want people to go, hey, John said that. I don't believe that. Uh, you know, I, Mary, uh, she's a jerk. Like, you know, you get away from that. And you want to say, okay, this is the biggest problem I think we have. Let's vote. Let's make sure that this is like the biggest thing. And let's, let's tackle this over the next, you know, couple of weeks. Um, and, and let's kind of sink and let's talk about this, thing, right? Um, I think we can all agree this is something where we can improve. And so let's get together and let's talk about this more and more often. And so that, that helps in two ways. One, I think the miscommunication, I think people are unaware. I don't think things are purposeful most of the time, right? Like I think folks are mostly just unaware 
of what's happening around them because they don't necessarily, they're involved in the outcome of that thing, but they're not looking at it day to day because it doesn't affect them until the outcome. So, right, like if I'm working on, let's say I'm an engineer, what's happening in, in customer success? Like, I, I don't know because I'm not really involved in it. However, when a customer goes crazy over some sort of outcome that we've all crafted together, right? Now I feel the effect of that, right? And so one of the things that you can do, right, is just to surface those things for everybody so they can all see. And then once everybody's kind of aligned, start taking, start doing things together in order to tackle this one problem. And so what you'll see as a, as a result of that is folks building trust with each other, folks starting to understand what other folks are going through, how other people's minds work. And you'll start building trust inside of that team. And that can go through the company. One thing to change the world. Sometimes it's, it's just one little push. You can, change, you can change your entire organization. I think sometimes one little thing can have a just proportionate positive impact. And there's so many things I just adore about what you just shared. And I would really invite listeners to hit the back button on on this podcast and, and write down word for word actually how you shared this and I think the way that you just explained and mapping that there's so many elements of that that I really appreciate and I think one of them is you made it disarming that's a place where there's a lot and Rick and I've seen this in our work there's a lot of elephants in the room and there's a lot of people that are scared to have those conversations so they avoid them and the way that you put that forward I feel like takes that command and control element of it and it's really about power with and let's co-create this map together and let's co-create this shared understanding from a place of curiosity and a place of, I'm seeing this, I'm curious, you know, does that resonate with you? What else are you seeing here? Let's build on that and let's get this, this shared understanding and shared language around that as well, that we can move forward and we can all have this co-ownership in this. And I feel like it's, it's really generous and it's something that creates the conditions to empower everybody on the team, not just the leader or the captain or whoever's responsible for the charge of that. And I want to dive into something you brought up this theme a little bit more and I'm curious about the relation but also just to open up the space for you as well and something you talk about you mentioned a couple times here you talk about it a lot in your work and in your writings is cognitive bias and I think this is a really interesting space that applies far beyond product I think product is interesting though because I think you see some of the cognitive biases of the team actually manifest in the technology so you may see a lens of this more pronounced on this and get some deeper insights out of it there was somewhere I read in your writing where you talked about reducing cognitive bias as being a critical business imperative. And this really resonated with me. And I'm curious if you could share why you think this is so important at that business imperative level and perhaps where businesses might start to work on this. Cause I know this can feel really daunting because there are so many different cognitive biases at play. I think the, the biggest thing is just waste. I think if I were to sit back and look at your operating expenses as a business, and I would suggest shadow you for three to six, shadow your team for three to six months. I could probably put a number, a percentage on how much waste is happening based on that bias, right? And my bet for a lot of companies is upwards to a 20 to 30% tax, which, you know, if I, like if I, if anything else is on the sheet, right? And I tell you it's a 20 to 30% tax, you'd go, let's fix it immediately, right? <laughs> Where, whereas I think with cognitive bias, since it's so subtle, it's such a silent killer of, of teams and processes and, and development. It's something that goes underneath the radar. And so people go, they just don't listen, right? A, a lot of times folks will take what is a bias or, or unconscious bias 
and go, this was purposeful. And so we're not going to talk to sales anymore because they're obviously, they're obviously not listening to us because, you know, they're going out to customers and they're building out these prototypes that we don't, uh, <laughs> that we, we don't approve of, or we're not going to talk to product anymore because, you know, they're obviously not listening to us and they're not building the prototypes that we need to go out, but they don't understand that we have a quota and we have to satisfy that in order to bring numbers and money to the business. Because without that, then we don't, they can't operate. Like, see, they're all, they're both talking about the same thing, but they're not talking, right? They've already made their, <laughs> they've already brought up their walls and they've said, okay, this is where we are. When the truth is like most of the folks that we work with are smart, caring individuals, right? They're, they're really there to see everyone win. And so I think at the heart of all of this, right, is, uh, you know, that 20 to 30% bias tax um, really starts at looking at the decisions that are being made. And I think this often good at the leadership level and, and to like kind of do a postmortems on, on things. I think a good postmortem can start to surface some of these, these bad decisions that might have been made, right? Like you can start to see where the points are. And you can probably start to see, especially if you go out and just hire somebody objective to take a look at this, which is also, if you have the resources to, it's a great way to grab, grab a facilitator or someone to take a look and say, okay, what led to this decision? What influenced this decision? How was it made, right? And, and you can start to break down what was behind it, right? Because they may have had a bias, right? It might be recency bias, right? They may be looking at something they saw in the Slack channel that made them go, oh, X, Y, and Z is obviously this, right? Or this company is obviously this. And somebody might go, wait a second. No, that was just a flippant comment. Like, you know, they, they're still, that was just an aberration. If you had just asked us, we would have told you. And then boom, right? You've just saw a recency bias kick off an entire thing inside of a company that no one realized that recency bias did unless you took a second to look at the decisions itself and how they were formulated. Same thing with pretty much any uh, cognitive bias you can think of, right? Confirmation bias. So yeah, we thought that company X Company X loved our stuff because it was stuff that we've already made. And then, you know, one can go, wait, how did you know? Uh... <laughs> so we were just confirming, right? So we don't have any, there's no red team here, right? There's no opposing force to really check our, check our biases because they have, no, they have no skin in the game. Another one is, you know, that's kind of related is some cost. Like, hey, we're gonna, we've been doing this for three quarters. Why are you doing it for a fourth? Well, um, we're supposed to, which is never a good idea. Like, that's never a good reason uh, for us to, to continue working on something, right? Because, you know, every hour costs. And so, you know, spread that out into uh, the course of a year, right? You're looking at, you know, 20, 30, 40% of your work may just be wasted in these decisions that are made off of bad information, right? No one's fault, right? Folks are making these decisions in good faith, they just, you know, for, for whatever reason, they've had to make them quick. They don't have time to, to, to look back at those decisions. They don't have time to, they don't have any kind of opposing but fair forces to say, okay, to test them on that decision-making. And so it becomes a lot to clean up. Now for teams that want to, let's say teams do this, a way to maintain this, now you're never going to get bias-free, but like to, to minimize the tax, right? Let's say, to turn it from 30, 40% down to like five, huge savings. You want to start hosting things like retrospectives or postmortems, or even this concept of, I call a pre-mortem, which has been spreading kind of like wildfire. Let me rephrase. I didn't come up with it, but 
I'd say that I came up with pre-mortems. It's something I've been using for years, but like it's a it's a wonderful concept uh, for those that are unaware before a project begins sitting down and saying, I think X will go wrong. Let's avoid it. Um, how do we avoid X from happening? And sitting with a yeah, a cross-functional team and thinking about these things out loud. Having a regular cadence to not just to do or not just to plan, but to also uh, take a second and just look back at our decision-making and reflect so that we can actually learn will help lower that cost that tax um, for bias. I love all of that, Adam. I mean, like, I think bias is such a integral part in our lives because that's how at the end of the day, like we all go about living our lives, but it's, it's minimizing some of those cognitive biases that are getting in the way of teamwork and efficiency. And I would love to know, I've seen a lot of organizations who do, they're like, okay, we're, we're on the pre-mortem or we're on, you know, like, oh, let's do the post-mortem. And they come up with all these ideas and then they don't do anything. And then it's the exact same problems again next time. And they're like, oh, huh, how come this is going wrong? Let's do another post-mortem. And they're, they're like, oh, these are the exact same things that happened eight months ago. Are there any strategies that you would advise leaders to be able to really follow through with some of those findings that if they if they are doing the regular check-ins and the consideration and reflections upon what's going right and what's going wrong, how might leaders integrate those findings more into the actual day-to-day? Well, I, I like a higher cadence. You mentioned eight months. It's like, oof, it's way too long because then that's how things kind of recede back into, back into memory and subconscious and then it's gone. So higher cadence, communicate those things have a spot inside of whatever the company communications are to talk about the reflections from that pre-mortem or post-mortem, right? So if I, as a leader, go up in front of the whole company at a town hall and say, here's products, things that we're working on this quarter, right? That, that adds a certain level of pressure to me to say, okay, well, people are going to want some sort of follow-up uh, next quarter, especially if you pre-make the slide to say, yeah, follow-up from last quarter, Things we're looking at this quarter, right? Like, so yeah, you got to fill them in. And I think also one thing that I've found that to be particularly effective with where I'm working at Smart Recruiters now is looking at smaller cross-functional teams uh, that are reliant on each other, right? So for for product, right, I'll have somebody in sales, somebody in design, somebody from engineering, someone from product marketing, and we'll sit down once a week and we'll just talk about this stuff. And so I got to come to that meeting with something that I've instructed my team to do, they have some expectations. And so it just keeps the pressure on me. And like, it doesn't need to be long, it could be 15, 30 minutes, but the idea is keeping it top of mind. Because if you do that once, folks aren't gonna be too mad. Twice, people start taking it way less serious. Three times, oh, this is just a waste of our time. Why are we here? And I think every leader, especially kind of their first go around, has made that mistake of just constantly just doing the thing and not really keeping up with or putting that energy into like checking in, executing on things, telling them success. And also I forgot to mention telling them failures too. Hey, we tried this. Here's what happened. I'm going to go another way because I think this is really important or yeah, we're putting this to the side because I got some more context that tells me, right, this isn't a problem. This is uh, working as designed here's what we're going to do in the future in order to avoid some of the pitfalls that we've had. Making sure that you come back and keeping your teams updated 
on a regular cadence and then also externally to everyone else. So that keeps you on the hook has been uh, useful for me. What I'm hearing and what you're sharing is they're such simple principles and they're so profound and they're so often overlooked. And that thread about communication too, is I think more often than not, a communication problem is really a miscommunication problem. And because things weren't communicated frequently enough or in a coherent or clear way or a consistent enough way as well. And having, again, talked about kind of that process over prize or journey over destination. Again, looking at this communication and these learnings as a process that we're moving through and having these continued reminders. So we have that accountability and we have the trust in the process and trust in one another with regards to that process because there's it means something. It's something we look to and learn from. I want to take this opportunity. I want to flip this on you as a leader, if you're okay with this a little bit more, because again, reading your stuff, there was something on your website that I had to go and do a double take on because it, it really resonated with me. And there's a lot of boldness. There's a lot of courage with it. And I'd love for you to share a little bit more. And it's in the about section in your website. You mentioned that you firmly believe that your ability to build comes from dancing with fear of the unknown and leading with your curiosity once you do. And I'm really curious, Adam, how have you learned to trust in yourself so you can hit the dance floor with fear? Because that's a really scary thing to do. Yes. And I think one of the themes definitely has been starting small. You don't have to go out there and be Fred Astaire immediately, right? Uh, you know, the, the idea is just kind of, you know, dip your toe into the water, right? I think that's where a lot of these things connect, uh, whether it's bias or, or, or communication or some of the other things that we spoke about earlier. I, I was telling one of my PMs today, right? Like, if you are communicating clearly and you are being thoughtful, and I can tell that you're showing your work, the chances of you getting in trouble are practically nil. Like you would have to do something like extremely diabolical and in bad faith. And I think most places work that way, especially once you understand what is the level of work that you need to show and who you need to communicate with. The idea is to start small because this is a muscle that you have to build, right? Thinking about who to communicate with and how do you show your work? And you start small, you start building that muscle piece by piece. And so as you start small and, and you talk to folks that are responsible for you, you give them the space to protect you. And if you have somebody that's particularly vindictive, which is very rare, I mean, it, it has happened in my career once, I would say out of every person that I've reported to in, in all of these wonderful years, this has happened once. And where like that person is not looking out for your best interests, run. Run, <laughs> run as fast and as far as you can away from that person, whether internally or externally, however you need to do it. But for the most part, for everyone else, right, if you figure out, again, how to show your work, how to communicate, and you start small, and you take these small little risks, you'll build the muscles and the trust as you succeed and fail and communicate those things to take bigger and bigger risks. And you start to build a portfolio of chances that you can take. And this transfers over to other jobs because that muscle, as you grow it, becomes very apparent because you start getting more confident. And as you like interview at other places, you have these anecdotes and these stories that you can tell that really connect that point or that, that level of risk that you're trying to take. Um, and then you have these stories that, yeah, you have these anecdotes that you can tell about like when I took a similar risk 
at X place, Y happened. And right, again, like with, with you showing your work and being comfortable with, with communicating the pros and cons, it becomes easier and easier to do. So this is a muscle that builds not just in one place, but in multiple places. And the next thing you know, you're Fred Astaire. <laughs> Tearing it up on the dance floor. There you go. There's so much insight and actionable wisdom in that, Adam. And I think I, I love the idea of a portfolio of choices or a portfolio of risks that you can take and, and anecdotes that you can really reflect back on. And then one, I think it helps you articulate the value of risk to future employers or other stakeholders that you might be needing to tell these stories to. And it also, like you said, just builds that trust muscle in yourself, which I think is so important. And you have given us a ton of valuable, practical information, but I have an inkling that there's probably something else in there. So I will be a little greedy and ask if there's any other practical advice and just kind of in the broad spectrum of all of the people-centric work that you do, is there any other advice that you would want to give to anyone, try, especially trying to bring more people-centric approaches to product management? This is going to sound, I think, super basic, but force yourself to write agendas for every meeting. Yes. Yep. Just like, it sounds like something, I know no one else writes agendas. I know it feels like a waste of time in the moment. However, what you start to build is you start to see what people are talking about, what's important, what do you get to? And also you, you have something that you can share, right? Um, for another example, right? With uh, our VP of product, I keep a running log of every conversation we have, of just to-dos, of, you know, if we have a one-on-one, what is our agenda, so on and so forth. Again, to just to make sure that our conversations are extremely focused and targeted because she's amazingly busy and she's got a lot of stuff going on. My job is to take things off her plate, not add. And so I have a skip level with the CEO yesterday. And so the CEO just goes, hey, give me a report of, you know, you just joined us. Very happy to see you here. Give me a report of what you need. And guess what comes in handy? Everything I wrote in that agenda literally becomes a SWOT analysis of everything. And it, it, it'll take me 15 to 20 minutes to do, as opposed to me thinking about, oh, yeah, I, I wish I, I, you know, I wish I'd put this down. Did I, did I mean that? Where, where's going on? And so, yeah, by, by forcing yourself to write agendas, not only is it helpful in terms of focusing your conversations, but also there are some hidden benefits that, that, that may pop up that'll make themselves known. And they're easily... Like agendas are very easy to improve upon too, because we're forced to look at them, right? Especially when you're looking like at, at one-on-ones, you can go, oh, okay, if I do this, then this is communicated easier. Or I noticed she didn't take to this here. I can adjust that and then split this into two items, right? To, to, to chop it up or it makes everything a lot easier to, to uh, communicate. So yeah, if I had one thing I would want everyone to do is just, Write agendas. Let's go write agendas. Here, here to that. And I, I mean, you talk about writing agendas, all these other benefits to that. And I love this lens where you're looking at as a learning log. I think that is so powerful as a really simple reflective practice as well. But again, our work, something that a pain point for Rick and I is we really hate bad meetings. That's another huge tax for organizations. And it's one of the fastest ways to erode culture and erode trust. And a really simple practice 
to help with that as a starting place is write agendas, share those agendas. And again, you've got that collective understanding. So I think is one simple practice that pays dividends across that is a total gem. And I feel like everything you've shared with us too, like this theme of bringing it back to basics and these really simple things that people can adopt. And I think maybe they get overlooked because they're not fancy or jazzy, but I think people don't realize the disproportional positive impact that comes from that. And I think that's a theme I hear from you. And it's something that's so evident in your writing and all the content you share through this is your thoughtfulness and your wisdom. And you can see your experience shining through and bringing this back to that people-centric lens and how much you were talking about it right at the top, the top, right? Everybody wins in this space. So I know, unfortunately, our time is coming to an end, but I feel like we're going to have to have another conversation with you another time because I would love to dive into specifically looking at with product and building trust at scale through product. And I, I feel like that's a whole a whole other show for us to do. So we are going to circle back with you on that. But I'd love to know right now, I know you're fairly new at Smart Recruiters, but I'd love to know what's in the horizon for you because you do have your other projects on the side. And also where can people find out about you and your work? And we'll be sure to include your newsletter and other things in the show notes as well. Outstanding. So my website that is a little overloaded, I'm going to focus on, on clearing that out. Uh, so the website certainly is a place uh, to look. But the good news is everything is there. So... <laughs> If you want to find it, it's there. Um, and so, yeah, the website is definitely something that's important. I'm relaunching the YouTube channel in short order. And so I'm already getting scripts together. And as soon as I get this wonderful, this wonderful setup the way I want it to, um, the lights are here, the, the camera's here, all is here, we'll be firing up uh, consistent videos. And so I will send a link and make sure that that's in the, the description below or, or the description below or wherever folks will find the description. I listen to a lot of podcasts, so it just automatically came out as the description below. Uh, ready for YouTube. <laughs> ready to be back on YouTube, my friend. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, that's certainly something else. And for the film lovers, I do have a film podcast with a friend of mine, uh, Professor Ntume Gant, called Within Our Gates, where we look at, I don't know, like... We bill ourselves as a Black culture podcast, but lately all we we spend a lot of time talking about like film in the 90s. Like it's just 90s film lately. Um, and in documentaries, I saw a really haunting one this week called Final Account. It's, it's an account of Nazis that worked in concentration camps. Like they got interviews with them and, and like done in the last like 10 years which is like, wow, because it's like, wow. Yeah. They're here. Like, you know, they're around, they're in public. These people just exist. And it's kind of like an evil version of everything we talked about here. I'm still haunted by it, uh, honestly. <laughs> and like, certainly uh, I was talking to him too, mate. Like, we're going to talk about, because there's so much here about the human brain and how we like erase things and how we change like it's it's amazing to just watch people do the mental gymnastics it's insane yeah those are folks are interested uh within our gates come on by we like movies over there even even the weird haunting ones like like final cat sign me up my friend probably that and the father i don't know if you've, you folks have seen the father no. which is anthony hopkins won that uh, best actor for that another haunting and i think there's some lines not, not any nazi through lines but just like age and 
it's 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 uh and, and how the mind works that's also a great film if, if if you can go see it yeah go for it anthony hopkins is amazing yeah now i have a, i feel like a new to watch list so thank you so much for that and a to listen to list now that i know you have a film podcast i'm like yes so thank you so much for sharing all of the actionable practical insights with us adam we will definitely make sure all of your links to everything and to your magical website is in the show notes and i the website just if people don't click the show notes which some people don't it's i believe it's the adamthomas.com correct boom. yes boom there we go excellent so the adamthomas.com thank you so much for joining us today adam it has been a blast thank you both for inviting me this was a wonderful conversation Thank you, Adam. And that's a wrap for this episode of In Trust. Thanks for listening. Remember that trust is better together. So if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with someone who you think might appreciate it and leave us a review. The In Trust podcast is produced by Spotlight Trust, where we help leaders and organizations put trust at the center of their work so they can achieve more than they ever thought possible while adapting to our fast-changing world. If you'd like to get in touch with us, Simply email podcast at spotlighttrust.com. And now, a quick word from our sponsors. We've been talking about it for a while now, and the wait is almost over. We are excited to announce that the Futurist Trust, Embracing the Era of Trust-Centered Leadership, will be released on June 15th. We are so excited to bring this reimagination of what a leadership book can be, and since trust is better together, we want to get this book into the hands of as many people as possible. To that end, you can pick up the Kindle edition pre-order at a steep, steep discount until June 11th. So unless you're driving, we want you to be safe. Go pre-order the Kindle edition today at thefutureistrust.com. We trust that you won't be disappointed.